The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story slinger Stephen King. Say thank you, Sai. This is episode two, The Drawing of the Three, the confluence of duality and obstacles. He thought, very well. I am now a man with no food, with two less fingers and one less toe than I was born with. I am a gunslinger with shells which may not fire. I am sickening from a monster's bite and have no medicine. I have a day's water if I'm lucky. I may be able to walk perhaps a dozen miles if I press myself to the last extremity. I am, in short, a man on the edge of everything. Which way should he walk? He had come from the east. He could not walk west without the powers of a saint or a savior. That left north and south. North. That was the answer his heart told. There was no question in it. North. The gunslinger began to walk. We are back as promised. It is the second installment of The Wheel of Ka, the bonus Dark Tower podcast presented by The Midnight Myth. As always, Derek is here, and joining me again is the amazing, the fantastic, the <laughs> indomitable, the brilliant and charismatic Steve to discuss book two, The Drawing of the Three. Steve, how are you feeling, brother? Oh, I feel great. Thank you for the quite an introduction. <laughs> oh, well, you know, so many adjectives. I gotta hand it up. No, continue, continue. The handsome, <laughs> the strongest, the most brilliant, right, now the prettiest. Yeah, now we're definitely far fetched. We're reaching now. It's okay. Yeah. I get it. So, uh, if you can't tell, listeners, we're really pumped. We had so much fun in the first episode, The Gunslinger. Oh yeah. We have just this week, both of us completed rereading the drawing of the three. You know, a lot of times just to give people a little like how the sausage is made. A lot of times in recording these things, I dig deep into what other fans are saying. I dig deep into what other, you know, people that I think have great critical opinions that uh, uh, have great commentary about art, what they are saying out there in the world and what uh, maybe scholastic, uh, you know, what scholars part of me are saying about it. I am not really doing that with the dark tower. No. I'm really interested in focusing on the work and not letting what other people have said kind of influence. And I'm not drowning out because there are good things out there, but I'm not actively seeking it out as much as normally. Would you, are you doing that too? I'm just curious. Oh, I never do it. I, the truth is, is that I, I, I'm such an opinionated person <laughs> when it comes to art, when it comes to the things I read, when it comes to music that I, but I'm also verily, uh, verily, <laughs> very Shakespeare e Sunday. Thank you. I'm very easily influenced. Anon, are you verily interested? I'm <laughs> <No>, sorry. <laughs> but I, I, I can be influenced rather easily. And so I try to stay away from criticism, even from people I respect until I've finished the series. And so the second time around, I'm learning so much more about the book series, so much more of why I enjoyed it the first time. I tend to stay away from that stuff. Yeah. Because then I then I, I come at it from a certain lens, from someone else's opinion that I might agree on or agree with, excuse me, and I try to stay away from that. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think I want to capture my fresh reaction and analysis. And I think the Dark Tower is such a personal story and there's so much personal stakes within the story that I am enjoying just reading it and kind of decluttering the noise in the digital world and just focusing on it and what what I have learned about it. And that being said, at the end of book two, The Drawing of the Three, tell me, give me your like, if you could give me your just quick thoughts, your quick reaction. How do you feel? You've finished the second book. What do you think about it? What have you learned that you didn't know? Sure. What are your immediate gut reactions to it? Right off the top, it's obvious that this is a different Stephen King than the first book. So this was published, I believe, in the early 80s uh, or the late 80s. And the first book was published in the early 70s. So we have a 10-year gap. He's already become a successful writer. He's written The Last Stand. I believe he's written Carrie by this point. Uh, And so automatically, it feels like a Stephen King novel, like a classic. We're going on this journey. There are clear-cut characters. They're very interesting. They're compelling. They're nuts. It's parts of this book are wildly uncomfortable reading it from a straight white male lens. And I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, But I felt much more excited this time around. I focused on a specific character, a different one than I did the first time around, um, and completely fell in love with one of the characters that we're going to talk about. Uh, And and I really think he's, he's inched his way past Roland. Uh, in my book of, of who I'm most compelled to. Uh, but I'll talk about that later. So yeah, I have, right I have a guess. Bat, I have a yeah. guess who that oh, yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you said I think I've already given away. Well, yeah. There's only really three characters Listen, that are Derek. worth like liking right. in this. And if well, you said him and not Roland, it kind of gets us to just one. Truth. <laughs> well, it could be one of those side characters. You know, you Every, never know. Everybody loves Jack Andalini. <laughs> I have always said that. Jack Andalini is the linchpin. No, he's, I'm kidding. He's the most important uh Cog in the wheel. Yeah. Um, so I, I what largely, about you? I, I largely agree with everything that you said there. I found reading it the second time, I found that a, it's clear that Stephen King is a much more um, skilled and much more experienced writer in the first one. In the music business, there's a term when someone is just starting out. It's called being green. And being green means inexperienced, a little sloppy, but also invariably talented. Sort of like me in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) A little green. (laughs) Well, The Gunslinger, to me, that book is a little green. Definitely. Still, it holds up. It's charming. But this book is, is, it's structured like a novel with a beginning, middle, and end. The narrative goes in one direction, whereas The Gunslinger is fragmented with memory and flashback, and it jumps all over the place. Right. Um, Stephen King lets other characters, we see the world through the eyes of other characters and not just Roland, Correct. which broadens our perspective of the world. It lets us see the gunslinger's world with fresh eyes through characters like Detta, Odetta, and Eddie, mm-hmm. and even Jack Mort um, as mm-hmm. well. And then he also develops side characters, interesting, fun side characters that are much more fleshed out from Jane the stewardess and Eddie. I mentioned Jack Andalini and Balazar. Balazar. You know, they're all really interesting. The drugstore clerk mm-hmm. um, that Roland robs, he makes sure to give us a little chapter inside his mind. Uh, Henry, Eddie's brother. Henry, Eddie's brother. So there's lots of more characters. The book, though, has 
I would say demonstrably less action than the first book. It feels like more happens. Because, you know, Roland slaughters a whole town in the first book. This book ends with a gunfight with him and the cops in New York City. But most of it is about being sick and slogging through, not knowing if you're you're up from down, left to right. And uh, it, it, it's a much more... Um, What's the right word I'm looking for? I almost want to say challenging read, but I feel like that's not the right word. It's uh, it's more adult, mm. whereas the gunslinger feels more adolescent. Sure. If that makes any sense. Sure. I think from a writing perspective, definitely. Because the, the first book is, we talked about, the, the first book is wild. It's fucking insane. Wild. It's nuts. But there are parts to this one as well, you know, we we actually we we do see two gunfights because there's also the one with Eddie. Oh, that's true. That we'll talk about, but you know, a couple of things that that jumped out right at me, mm-hmm. uh, especially about main themes of this book, and you and I talked a little bit about this before, right. were the themes of duality on many different spectrums between characters, between time and space, between worlds, uh, and then obstacles, which is one that you that we talked about last night, which I thought was brilliant. And had to text you and remind me what it was. <laughs> there might have been a few beers involved. One or two. Yeah, I do think there are two main themes that I took out. Um, before we jump into the themes, mm. let, me, uh, let me ask you this question. Is this installment, the drawing of the three, is it a Western? I think in certain ways it is. Sure. It's broken up by different vignettes, if you want to look at the chapters as vignettes. Um, I think there's the classic struggle of, you know, Roland trying to come out of this sickness, trying to come out from, I mean, in the very beginning, he loses his hand and part of his foot. So we have this killer who we meet in book one, who all of a sudden is hampered completely. He loses two right, two fingers on his fucking right hand. His main shooting hand. Like, what? We just spent all this time establishing this, this character. And now I think, to come back to the Western, this is part of his struggle. Now it's the, the character's redemption. He has to save himself. He has to rely on others to bring him back. So I do think it's a piece of a Western. I think it starts to move... It feels a little bit more like a movie in the way it's written. Almost, it's narrative changes, but I do think that there are elements of a Western that are a part of this story, part of this book. I, I agree with you there. I will, I will also challenge a little bit, if you'll permit me. Of course. So I do think the elements of, of Western, it's Western-inspired, but I feel like, whereas the first book is very much a Western at its heart, mm-hmm. and that's what King is writing, mm-hmm. because it's dusty towns on a desert, it's, you know, empty way stations where you can almost hear, like, um, the theme song from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly playing in the background. This one doesn't have that quite same feel to me. In this book, we see it jumping from time and space. It takes place on a beach primarily. Then it goes to an airplane. Then it goes into a shopping mall. Then it goes to a drugstore. It grounds much of its imagery in very non-Western imagery. Whereas the first book has him in a saloon with two swinging doors with, uh, you know, a bar that, you know, hasn't been sanded or stained and him just going like, whiskey and burger, please. Whereas this one, 
we see stewardesses, we see customs agents. You know, it it while it has the same ultimate Western lone man against the world, um, you have to overcome your odds. You got to be tough. You got to bury your emotions if you're going to succeed. Sort of stoicist feel. It also adds to this mythology oh, with certainly. magic doors that lead to different dimensions and. And I think we're seeing King really, if the first book is Western inspired, I would say this one is Western 2.0. Definitely. I think, I think it's, it's Western in a modern sense because we do have these two gunfights that happen, especially the first one where it's, you know, we're naked in, or Eddie's naked inside of a room. We're being shot out by mobsters, you know, and, and he has to, to me, that felt the most Western. It reminded me of Tull in a way. Uh, absolutely you know not not the same ease that Roland has but that feeling every every time there's a certain feeling of excitement that happens in these battles that happen in the book because they're few and far between they don't happen very often you know they're pieces of each book but I think I agree with you I think it's western 2.0 for sure it's not classic by any means totally so let's jump into the main themes yeah sorry about that no you're no need to apologize (laughs) at all yeah I'll let you know when you do something wrong Steve and then Steve. Yeah, apologize it for nothing. All right, so we discussed the main themes, and I came away with two. The first theme is duality, and that one I think is a little more complicated to to talk about. So let's talk with the other one that I think is, it's more in how King is writing this, is in obstacles. Right. So we discussed that the very first scene is Roland falling asleep on a beach with gigantic monster lobsters going data chum data chi <laughs> right and ripping his his good hand his dominant hand to shreds infecting him with poison that he has no medicine he has no food rips off his big toe on his left foot and as he is slogging he his with near dying breath makes his way to the first door i it's clear to me that what king is trying to do is slow roland down Right. Put things in his way that make it as hard as possible. Can Roland make his way out of this mess that he is in? And the quest itself is the obstacle. Every night the lobstrosities come back. There's no guarantee when he opens the door where it goes. In fact, when he does open the door, what does he get the prisoner? He gets a junkie in New York. He, mm-hmm. It's an alien world to him. He doesn't understand it. And we see Roland's nature, and they talk about this a lot in the book. Actually, a lot. I think two or three times. They talk about his pull between being logical and romantic. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that he exists somewhere between those two pulls. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's a perfect explanation, a perfect description of Roland throughout the entire series. And it culminates in the very end when he is inhabiting the body of Mort, where he comes up with a plan, but he's like, you gotta leave room to improvise because I'll do my best work when I'm improvising. The logical part of him says you must plan, but the romantic part says don't plan too much because right. you need to genuinely be inspired to get yourself out of it. Right. And so the obstacles are the lobstrosities, it's the lack of medicine, it's the fact that everyone that he pulls out into this world has some major flaw that is inhibiting their ability to go on this quest, and the gunslinger has to heal them in order for the quest to be successful, that these obstacles that he keeps bumping into, that then I think play to the theme of duality. And I also think that 
this is the point in time where we see that Roland must rely on others to continue his quest. He must. If he's going to go on, he must rely on these people. Not an easy thing for Roland to do. Every time he relies on someone, they die. Every single time. We've already established in book one that he will kill anyone and everything on the quest for the tower. But now that he is half the killer, literally half the killer he was, he has to do the one thing he couldn't do in the first book, which is come to trust and care about others. Right, right. And I think it really hits your theme of this story is the story of Roland forming a soul. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this book, there's just a great scene where Roland just puts his hand on Eddie's shoulder and they just laugh. Yeah, it's one of the things I wrote down is that this is the first time where we really see Roland love another person. Right. And put down his guard, put some amount of trust into another human being. And who knows how long it's been since he's done that. Right. Thousands of years. Right. I, I would imagine. I mean, that's what I see. I see it's been quite a long time since Roland has trusted someone enough. I mean, come on, a book a book ago, he murdered an entire town. Yep. Without even thinking, seeing red, going ballistic, fucking crazy. And all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, he meets he meets Eddie. They have a strong bond. It's interesting. I see Eddie and Roland as uh sort of like uncle nephew where I see Roland I as love that. father son. I see, you know, this nephew uncle role because I see Roland pouring his heart out even, even in the tiniest bits for Eddie because they see something in one another. I love that when Eddie is finally pulled into the world and Roland is, he's nursing Roland through his fever while he is getting over the physical side effects of heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. There's a point where Eddie and Roland are sitting around the campfire. He's giving Roland medicine. He's getting better. And Eddie tells the story of Henry to Roland. Ugh. And we see this, this scene largely from Roland's eyes. And Roland knows the story. Even though he doesn't know about heroin, he doesn't know about Vietnam, he doesn't know about Queens. None of these things really he knows about, but he knows the narrative, but he lets Eddie tell it anyway. He allows Eddie to tell a story that he knows it, that he, what Roland knows where it's going to go right. and what it's about and what the main themes are because Eddie needs to tell it to himself. And in that moment, it is very much uncle-like. Yeah, definitely. It's like going to your uncle with that thing that you can't tell your dad about because you're too embarrassed. Right, right. You know, like, but your uncle I have won't judge that way. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, same here. But your uncle won't judge you no, for not it. At all. Absolutely. Not at all. I totally have that uncle too. To me, it's my uncle Rob. You know, like, <laughs> you know, if there's anything I'm like, uh, dad's going to judge me, but, you know, uncle Rob, you know, he's, he's cool. Right, right. He's not going to judge me if I tell him this. So it's very much like that dynamic. Sure. And we're seeing the first familial bonds. Mm -hmm. We are, and I love that you put it in the, and that is the type of bond they have. You said it perfectly. And I, it will change and it, it will evolve over time for sure. But specifically in this book, Eddie goes through a lot. So I'd like to talk about Eddie Dean for a little bit. Before we do, if one, we I sure. just want to read one quick quote. Absolutely. And I think it kind of speaks to the stakes of Roland. This is in chapter one when he's by himself and he first encounters the door. And it is, there is no keyhole in the knob above it or below it. 
The door had hinges, but they are fastened to nothing, or so it seems, the gunslinger thought. This is a mystery, a most marvelous mystery, but does it really matter? You were dying, your own mystery, the only one that really matters to any man in the woman in the end. He approaches. And I find that that quote really just jumped out to me because here he is confronting and seeing the door and he's admitting that there's only really one true mystery, which is death. And I think this is the first time that I can think of in the book where we see him put con- the, the, the context of his mortality, linking it to the context of the quest of the tower. Mm. And it really, to me, symbolizes what really is the tower. It is Roland's conquest over death. Sure, which adds to that theory of him finding his soul and eventually leading through the doors of death. Right, which is one of the prevailing themes which is this is all about death, which we'll get to when we talk about more. All right, so I just want to thank you for that quote. Please, no, absolutely. Let's, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about Eddie Dean. Oh, it's like Christmas now. All right, so I, I, have, a, a, I, I have a good quote that I pulled. I pulled a ton of quotes. So no, please, I love them. Please. So let's kick it off with right this. On. This is about Eddie Dean. It was about the name, though. He knew the name of the prisoner's brother, but not the name of the man himself. But of course, names were secret things, full of power. And neither of the things that mattered was in the, name, the man's name. When, when was the weakness of the addiction? All right, sorry, I misquoted that somewhere. That's okay. Yeah, there's a little fumble in there. Something about the weakness of the addiction. The other was the steel buried inside that weakness, like a good gun sinking in quicksand. Boy has a steel spine. Absolutely. He definitely does. Like a good gun yeah. sinking in quicksand. Right. So there's an interesting thing about Eddie. One, he admits that he doesn't know Eddie's name. This is the gunslinger in Eddie's head, mm-hmm. but he knows Henry. Right. And he admits that there's power in the name and the power of naming things. But then at the same time, he says that there are two things in Eddie that matter more than the power of the name. One is the steel buried in his spine, and the other is his addiction. Right. This is our first like real literal duality symbolism. Right. Eddie has two selves, the steel and the addiction. And the conflict that we see in Eddie is which self will overcome. And I think that's where Roland can relate to him. You know, we have the killer, we have the romantic. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, have, I, I figured earlier that you were saying Eddie Dean is your favorite character. Yeah, for Was sure. I correct? Yes, And more so the second time around, because the first time around I was completely enamored with Roland, and I I still am, but I think that's the part, I mean, I think that's the biggest piece of the story, right? You're supposed to relate to Roland, obviously. But Eddie was incredibly difficult for me the first time around. He is a witty son of a bitch. He is just... At first, I couldn't stand him. He got on my nerves. I thought he was... He he just picked on Roland. He was a snot-nosed brat. He's just the, you know, somebody who his addiction clouds every piece of judgment. The second time around, I realized how incredibly wrong I was. And it was very humbling because I fell in love with Eddie almost immediately. You know, we start this story off with when Roland enters through the door and he sees through Eddie's eyes for the first time realizing that this kid is trying to smuggle cocaine off of a plane. 
in the 1970s, I believe it is. I think it's the 80s. Or it's the 80s, I think correct. it's the 80s right. with Eddie, yeah. So he's, you know, trying to smuggle it off this plane. He's got two big bags of cocaine taped underneath his arms. Balazar chooses him for a reason, his steel spine. You know, you and I talked about how even though he's a junkie, even though he's really not a very big guy, he's not very strong. I mean, he's basically, he's like a toothpick. I mean, he's a heroin addict. He, he, he's not worth, you know, his weight and salt, but that steel spine is what separates him. Absolutely. And that's ex- immediately what Roland sees. And that's where immediately through his eyes, he can recognize Eddie because those two share that ability to just pull themselves together like a, and, you know, not be able to bend like a piece of steel. And I think King really goes to great lengths to illustrate that spine in Eddie's story in that we get to see Eddie really handle the customs police officers well. Eddie has another consciousness in his mind. Right. And the other characters are like fucking literally crazy. Eddie deals with this (laughs) remarkably well. Yeah. All things being equal. Right. He's just like, okay, you're okay. So there's a consciousness in me. I'm either dead or I'm mad or I'm sane. And there's another human being in my head. Those are my three options, so I better pick which one. And you know what? As long as you're, you're helping me get off this plane, I'm cool with it. Right. And which he, is and Roland, remarkable. It is remarkable. I mean, to be able to, in, in, and in a very short amount of time, to be able to struggle with that at first, immediately make a decision and say, you know what? This makes sense. Fine. I'm going to go with this. Whatever helps me get out of danger whatever helps me get off this plane we'll fucking deal with this later i'm high as it is i'm i'm strung out i need another fix this is just another part of it going and, going cold not uh what wasn't it wasn't cold turkey it's going oh what's the phrase that he has oh, oh god i'm totally blanking on it i i will think of it as soon as we stop recording i know i know um cool turkey was it cool turkey? Is that what Henry says to him? You got to go cool turkey. Cool turkey. The yeah, great yeah. sage and intimate junkie, Henry. And uh, we also see uh, Eddie confront the drug dealers in Cuba. I think he goes to Cuba, right? I believe so, yeah. yes. So he confronts the drug dealer in the hotel room. Right. And we see that Eddie has fucking balls of steel. It's man. unbelievable. And, he, and I, I think part of it is because he knows how smart he is. He knows he can talk his way out of situations. He's a classic charismatic character who can talk his way out of anything. And then we get back to the States. You know, he's, he's having conversations with Roland inside the little air, you know, airplane bathroom as everybody's exiting the plane. He's got pilots and flight attendants who are trying to, you know, bust this kid because they know for a fact that he has something on him. They're not wrong. And he immediately just decides I'm sure I'm going to jump through this door, come into this other world, leave this stuff here and continue with my plan. Then we get to fucking Balazar. He gets out of the airport. Then we get to Balazar, you know, this big time, well, small time mobster who has hired Eddie, you know, to bring back this cocaine because of, you know, his nerves of steel. And we were talking about how just a little aside on Balazar, how he makes that, you know, the tower of cards. Oh yeah. And there's the scene where it falls and he immediately shoots the gun. Absolutely. How, how unbelievably like Roland. Oh yeah. 
And also the the bar itself is the tower. And when right, Roland right. first sees it, oh, he freaks out. He's like, "Oh my god, I found the tower! Like, We're here. We we made it to the tower. It's it's been here <laughs> oh in this god. weird city." Right. Yeah. He absolutely loses it when he sees that. So we see the tower imagery, and I do think the tower ultimately, at least at this point, I think the tower will mean different things at different times in the story. Absolutely. But right now, it is a metaphor for death. Mm-hmm. It is a metaphor for the shadow that looms over us. It is a dark tower that Roland is traveling to and it's death for everyone and everything. The ultimate, the ultimate end is the tower. We all get to it. And I think it will change as we get deeper into the the narrative. But right now it, it makes sense that when the tower falls, Balazar murders, right? You know, like it, it just links itself with death and death so quick death. So perfectly. May I read you another quote? You know, and please, as I'm rereading this quote, I remember why I wanted to, to discuss it, but I forget the full exact scene that it's in. So it's a little bit out of context, but it's when Roland is in Eddie's mind and Roland is thinking about just taking control over Eddie's body completely. He would not do that. For one thing, it would be the most murderous sort of thievery because he would not be content to just be a passenger for long. That would be Eddie would not be content looking out of this man's eyes like a traveler looking out of a, a coach window at the passing of a scenery. For another, he was Roland. If dying was required, he intended to die as Roland. He would die crawling to the tower if that's what was required. Then the odd, harsh practicality that lived beside the romantic in his nature like a tiger with the roll, with the, with the roar, pardon me, reasserted itself. There is no need to think of dying with the experiment not yet made, which the experiment is of taking over Eddie's right, body. Right. And this is him wrestling with the idea of I can control this body if I want because I'm Roland. I am the last line of Eld. If I'm in someone's brain, that body's fucking mine if right, I want it. Right. And I can absolutely do it, but it is a type of thievery that Roland cannot just willfully do And because he sees the steel in Eddie, because he sees him at somewhat like a nephew, Mm -hmm. like a a family Mm -hmm. member that you're close to but doesn't live in your home, Mm -hmm. and because he sees that that value in Eddie, he can't just take control of it, and he can't just take his body and then take his body back and just leave his old body behind. Right. Right? And it's him wrestling with, I could take this body because mine's dying, and he won't do it. His crazy sense of morality. Roland's sense of morality is, I don't know about you, but I think it's all over the fucking place. But I'll, I, but I'll bring, I would like to talk about that later, actually, because I okay. think this book can, explores that. We can, we the can only bring other, that back later. The bring only that other back later, thing that, that I really want to talk about with Eddie Dean, because I could talk about Eddie forever, but in, specifically in this book, you know, Henry plays a major role in Eddie's story throughout the entire series. Henry is his older brother, uh, who is, I believe he's something like seven or eight years older than Eddie. Uh, Eddie looks at him like a prophet. Everything that comes out of Henry's mouth is scripture, for lack of a better term. Everything that Henry says, Eddie latches onto and respects and reveres. And obviously, if the wise sage Henry Dean says it, it must be true. So... Flash forward, we, we read all of these horrible things about Henry, obviously, who's, who's, I'm sure, deals with 
a lot of things in his life. There is no father figure. They were latchkey kids in New York City in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And Henry was a bully. Henry was always bigger than Eddie and until later years. He picked on him mercilessly. We find out that Henry goes to Vietnam, comes back with an injury, becomes, you know, while he was in Vietnam, became addicted to morphine, which then leads to several other drugs, which in the end leads to heroin. And then Eddie gets Eddie involved. And can we make a point too about Please. the mother? Yes. And the little sister? Yes. So I think it's significant right. that the Dean family has three kids in the book, The Drawing of the Three. Mm. And the book, The Drawing of the Three, can sometimes, with the theme of duality, feel like a paradox. Shouldn't there be threes? But the number three creeps up. So there is Henry and Eddie, but there's a big shadow over the family, and that is the death of their younger sister. And because of the death of the younger sister, the mother's inability to deal with this death in a healthy way, she ends up putting so much pressure on Eddie because Henry can't do the things that Henry needs because Henry has to protect Eddie because no one could protect the daughter. And I think that dynamic is one of the, it, it's what I mean when I see King as the adult writer here. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just that Eddie is a junkie with a very sick relationship with his older brother. It's that we get so much of Eddie's story and we get so into the, the, the personality of Eddie and how this family formed that it feels so unbelievably real that who of us wouldn't be like Eddie if we were in those same circumstances? Yeah, right on, definitely. Fuck, dude. That's, it's man. deep. It's deep. Yeah, it didn't even make me think. You see, you know, this is why I enjoy this so much because you make me think about things that I didn't as I read the book. Well, you awesome. know, but you know what? The conversation itself is what breeds the good right. ideas because right. our deep dive into Eddie, it then just popped up that like, hold on, we have to at least mention if we're talking about Henry, the sister. Well, and funny enough, so now we go back to Balazar. So we go to this fight, right? And just to give a little context, Eddie Dean strips himself naked at one point in time in Roland's world, comes back, and he's to prove that he doesn't have this cocaine on him. Long story short. A gunfight ensues in which Roland comes through the door into Eddie's world, gives Eddie one of his guns. Huge moment. Huge moment. And, uh, and just to draw it, uh, just to, to pardon the interruption, mm -hmm. to draw it back to obstacles mm -hmm. that would never happen if his hand hadn't been shredded. Correct. Correct. And that is King working through the obstacles and linking it to character development in a such a beautiful way. Anyway. And Roland having to rely now on this junkie kid to basically kill everyone in this room with him. Which Eddie does. And Roland doesn't even think about it. He just gives him the gun. He knows that Eddie is of this line that is able to wield Excalibur and be able to wield his gun. And so Eddie fights buck ass naked. And is killing all of these mobsters left and right. He's running over glass. His feet are bleeding. And they're cut up. He's diving and juking and moving out of the way. And Roland, there's one point in the book where Roland just stops and admires it for a quick second. And that's like wild to me. In the middle of, a, middle of just a killing field, you're like looking at this kid like, damn, he's, he's pretty talented. I made the right choice here. But... To bring it back to Henry Dean, 
Please, sorry for this the interruption. This is the moment where, right before this happens, we're in a room with, you know, Balazar's henchman, Jack Andalini, another gentleman, and they have Henry in the back, and they have him doped up. He's high. God, that's such a fucking tough scene to read, Oh, too. they're playing Trivial Pursuit and asking these questions and picking on him, and, like, you know it's going to happen, right? You feel Reading it. it. You feel it right away. And essentially... What happens is, for, for all of our listeners, if you've read it or not read it, they get Henry high to the point where they overdose. He overdoses. and He dies. So to kind of antagonize Eddie, they chop his head off and throw the head of a dead Henry Dean in front of Eddie. And that's where Eddie turns into the gunslinger. He sees red. And that's the end of everyone in this room. There are no more games. And Roland is so impressed because Roland admits that fighting naked is a hard thing for a man to do. Oh my God, no armor? I mean, it's pure adrenaline. You have to have, I mean, look, I'm sorry, for lack of a better term, balls of steel, dude. That's nuts. I could never do that. Never in my life. There are emotional things I connect to with Eddie. There are the way that he responds to people that I I connect to with Eddie. But his ability to just be bold and fearless, that's an attractive piece of his character, man. Can I read a quote? Always. So Eddie is now drawn into Roland's world, and Roland is listening to Eddie talk about his life with Henry, and these are some thoughts that Roland has that I thought stood out and I think speak to the broader themes of both duality, of obstacles, and mortality. And this is Roland's thought. So he was the last, he being Eddie. And perhaps he had survived because the dark romance in his nature was overset by his practicality and simplicity. He understood that only three things mattered. Morality, or I'm sorry, mortality, Ka, and the tower those were enough things to think about. And Ka I think... Ka gets mentioned. Mm-hmm. Not the only time. Mm-hmm. Ka, I, and I think that's the first time Ka is mentioned, if I remember, and that's why I, I wrote it down. Right, I, I believe so. My notes are painfully incomplete because I dictated them into my phone, and I'm like, I didn't put my whole thought, of course I'm going to remember it, but I'm pretty certain that's the first time we really see Ka and we really see the idea that, I think that, you're right. that there are three things that are linked, and it's the tower. Right. The tower, which literally holds the universe together. Mortality, which is death. And Ka, which is from the tower, the spokes on the beams that connect the entire universe. The fabric of the universe are these three things. And then in the end, there is still this pull between practicality and romanticism. That's a huge theme of the duality of this book. And in the end... Those are enough things to think about. Should we talk about Detta? Odetta? Yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk about Shuffle just very quickly? Yes, let's talk about Shuffle. So Shuffle is this really interesting uh, device that Stephen King uses where immediately after the first door, we have the Shuffle chapters. And basically, it's like the tarot deck that the man in black had read from is being shuffled, and the next card is being drawn. So Roland is fucking dying. He is dying. He just got antibiotics. He just got the Keflex from Eddie from Balazar's, you know, office or his bathroom. He's taken some, but now 
it harkens back to the first book. Time and space are all over the place. We're getting tiny vignettes of, of Roland being, you know, fed part of the lobstrosities by Eddie. This is the poison taking effect that we talked about from the prologue. He's got basically what I see as a fever dream sequence, right? Where if, if this were television or if this were film, it, it would, you know, the visuals would be crazy. We'd be bouncing from time and space from a deserted desert back in the man in black. You hear the fucking man in black laughing, <laughs> you know, in his brain and all of this. And it, it, it reminds us that yes, Stephen King is still a thriller writer. He's still a horror writer. He's going to keep us off balance. And Roland is the per perfect person to do it. He's dying. Infection is, you can see it crawling up his arms. He describes the veins being red and puffy and like rolling fucking delirious. Eddie, are, he thinks Eddie's arguing with him at certain points in time when in reality, Eddie's trying to save him. And the shuffle just, there are the tarot card references. Again, you know, I thought this was really interesting and completely disorienting. We're on this we're on this classic Stephen King movie kick, right? Like I said, he's made Carrie, he's a big time star at this point. Stephen King is the man. And that first chapter feels like it. And then he writes Shuffle. And we're like, blah, 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 blah. what? Where are we now? <laughs> right. This is about time and space. This is about obstacles. This is about creating different dimensions. And Roland just hearkening back to these thousands and thousands and thousands of years that he's been on the same journey. And I, I this love is, that. Yeah. This is probably one of my favorite pieces of the book because it keeps that sense of imbalance that I like about the series. I love it. I absolutely, absolutely love it. Can I read another quote? It's not from shuffle. It's from before. Sure. But this is Roland engaging with, the man in black in his mind as he's approaching the door and his fever is, is hitting him. You've killed the boy that was the sacrifice that enabled you to catch me and, I suppose, to create the door between worlds. Now you intend to draw your three one by one and condemn all of them to something you would not have for yourself, a lifetime in an alien world where they may die as easily as animals in the zoo set free in a wild place. That's all the man in black. Then Roland thinks, the tower, Roland thought wildly. Once I've gotten to the tower, been done what, what it is I'm supposed to do there, accomplished whatever fundamental act of restoration or redemption for which I was meant, then perhaps the, and it cuts off. But the shrieking laughter of the man in black, the man who is dead but lived on as the gunslinger's conscious, would not let them go on with the thought. You know what's interesting about the man in black? And, the, and I'm glad you read this quote. I find him to be more relatable the second time around because of the two of them. To me, his response is the realistic and Roland's is the romantic. No, Go on. I uh -huh. must, I am destined to get to the tower. These people will help me. Nothing else matters except my quest for the tower. But the man in black says, no, 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 no. Prior to this, no, no, no. You're going to put these people through the hell that you wouldn't put yourself through. Roland spends very little amount of time in their world. He draws them to his quest. And I think it's so interesting that Roland's conscience has turned into the man in black's voice. And that is fucking wild.
absolutely wild to put the protagonist or I'm sorry, the antagonist of the last book wild as the conscience <laughs> of the protagonist in the second book uh. is brilliant. And because the man in black does something that Roland desperately needs, he needs someone to call fucking bullshit. And who does he first draw out? Money talks, bullshit walks, mm. Eddie fucking Dean. Eddie Dean. Who's the first person to look him in the eye and been like, you know what, man? Your fucking quest for the tower, that's your fix. Yep. You're as much you're a, addicted to that as much as I am to heroin. You're as much a junkie. Yeah. And why he is so instrumental because Roland needs to learn to love Eddie as a uncle to a nephew in order for Eddie to get over his addiction to heroin and his addiction to the memory of his brother. Right. But Eddie has no illusions about what it is. He's like, you're probably going to kill me in the process of this. I'm going to die. And there are so many little foreshadowings of Eddie Dean's death. He's like, I'm going to die on this thing. You, you know I'm going to die on this thing. Why can't you just say it? Just say it. I'm in this fucking world. You brought me here to fucking die. And he does, and he calls, to, and he becomes, I think, in a sort of way, the the consciousness of the man in black laughing at him. He no longer laughs at Roland once there's Eddie, who's literally laughing at him in his face. Right. The last question, I have a question for you about Eddie Dean. It'll be the last thing I ask about Yeah, we've Eddie. talked about him a lot. We have. Do you think that Eddie is the embodiment of the actual Stephen King? So at this point, oh man, because I'm trying to separate where we are and where, and I the, mean where the story goes. And I mean from this point of the book. Yeah. Just in this book. I do think most of this book is about Eddie. I mean, it, Eddie, other than Roland, Eddie gets the most amount of time to see the world and experience the world. And his character arc changes the most. And he is me. a completely different person at the end than where he is. Mm -hmm. Which you can say the same about Detta and Odetta. However, Detta and Odetta are the duality theme, like taken literally, whereas it's taken symbolically with Eddie. So there has to be a reason he gets so much more attention. And I do get the sense that Eddie Dean is very much Stephen King-ish. And I'm not a great writer. You know, I, the, the closest Neither thing am I. that I've come to creating stories is being a dungeon master. And so this, in Dungeons and Dragons, which, yes, internet, if you're listening to this, you know I'm a nerd already, but yeah, I dungeon master. Right, and I'm in his campaign. Yes. So, that, so that gives you any hint. <laughs> and I can say that when I create non-player characters, there is always a lot of me in them. And invariably, in every campaign, I have a favorite. And it happens intuitively. I don't choose this one to be the favorite. Right. It becomes the favorite. Eddie Dean, to me, feels like Stephen King's favorite. And that's and I, I only ask that because I think it's a common theme with Stephen King. I feel like there is one character in each of his novels, at least each of the novels that I've read, that very much symbolizes him. But that's all. I just wanted to, we can wrap up on Eddie Dean and, and now we can move on to the second door. Yes. Like the drawing of the three, most of this podcast will be about Eddie Dean. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about Detta. Can I read, I'm going to read a quote if you don't mind. But he felt, he being Roland, a pang, a deep reproach, reproach, reproachful, wow, that's hard, hurt in his heart. He was capable of shooting with his left hand anyway, of killing, of going on and on 
slamming with brutal relentlessness through miles and years, even dimensions, it seemed, in search of the tower. He was capable of survival, sometimes even of protection. He had saved a boy Jake from a slow death in the way station and from sexual consumption by the oracle at the foot of the mountains. But in the end, he had let Jake die. Nor had this been by accident. He committed a conscious act of damnation. He watched the two of them, watched Eddie hug her, assure her it was going to be all right. He could not have done that. And now that rue in his heart was joined by stealthy fear. If you've given up your heart for the tower, Roland, you have already lost. A heartless creature is a loveless creature. A loveless creature is a beast. To be a beast is perhaps bearable, although the man who has become one will surely pay his own price in the end. But what if you should gain your object? What if you should be heartless, actually storm the dark tower and win it? If there is naught but darkness in your heart, what could you do to accept to expect, pardon me, to denigrate from beast to monster? To gain one's object as a beast would only be bitterly comic, like giving a magnifying glass to an elephant. But to gain one's object as a monster, to pay hell is one thing, but do you want to own it? And I felt that quote, there's so much to extrapolate. Definitely. We are dealing with the conflict of Roland and his lack of soul, that dealing with the conflict of Roland with his romanticism and pragmatism, and we're also dealing with the weight of his decision to be a killer. When he sees Eddie and Odetta embrace each other and love each other and care for each other, he realizes the one thing that he is missing is his humanity. Mm-hmm. To become the master of death, but to be a monster, is that really worth it? And for the first point, we're seeing Roland question sacrificing everything for the tower. Sure. And he does that when he sees the pure and joyous love between these two characters that he has drawn. They're teaching him to love, mm-hmm. which is the thing he needs to gain your, your quest, to gain the Holy Grail, to conquer the world if you're a Napoleon. What does it matter if in the end you don't have a soul? And Roland is realizing I need to maintain my soul because I can't hug Odetta and tell her everything will be okay. And it's funny, up until this point, I really believe that Roland is going to find his soul. At the end of this book, I'm, I still believe that he's, at the end of this journey, he's, he will find his soul. And he has, in a way, at least found his first form of a family mm-hmm. in a long time. Oh yeah, thousands of years. Absolutely. Thousands. So and it's not yet complete. Let's get but into it's getting there. Let's get into into Odetta. Death. The Lady of Shadows. So this is duality and obstacle mm-hmm. combined. 100%. Because we have a schizophrenic character without legs who cannot travel on the beach easily. And then when is the other, when is the Detta character is actively trying to kill the heroes? And if it can't kill, slow them down and hurt them in every way that she can. Right. She's, if she can't win the battle outright, she's willing to win the war of attrition, which is slow and painful and making sure every single step that they have costs something, 
even if it hurts her. Right. And she comes from Eddie's where, but not Eddie's when, if it makes sense. So now when we go through the door, we're in basically 1950s New York City. Uh, Odetta Holmes. I think it's the 60s. Is it the 60s? Why am I always a decade off? I'm always a decade (laughs) off. So we're in the 1960s. It's in the civil rights movement. Ah, yes, yes. Duh. (laughs) So Odetta Holmes is a a young woman from 1960s New York City. She is the daughter of a uh, rich dentist father who has built this dental community. And again, she is paralyzed from the waist down. So she's in a wheelchair. She does not have the function of her legs. Um, she, it, it should also be mentioned that she is a young black woman. So she's a young black woman, rich in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. And they talk a lot about uh, basically, what is the town that she travels to? It's in Alabama. It's right. And she learns like it's the first time that she really is inundated with racism. Uh, and it's a tough read. I mean, all of this, I, I, I think we, you know, I think Derek and I can both agree that is straight cisgendered white men living in America. These were very difficult chapters to read. Yeah. Especially when we get to Detta Walker, when we get to the other half of Odetta. Yeah, when I first did my Dark Tower, first read was through Audible, and I listened to it, as you heard from the last week's episode. Right. And there was an older, obviously white man narrating it who was a fantastic narrator and voice actor. Listening to the dead of voice was awful. Right. It was tough. It nearly got me completely out of the entire series. And only because... I had confidence that the character Detta would not survive this book, mm-hmm. that at some point these two halves will become a whole. Mm. And I believed that that would happen. And that's what got me through it because man, listening to it was ugly. Right. I mean, from the time that the book was written, we were not talking about racism as openly as we are now. White people were certainly not identifying with their privilege in the very small but real way that we are now. And I don't even, I don't think when Stephen King wrote this, really that was much of a thought, to be honest. I mean, maybe. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to divine his intention. Sure. I will say, one, it's amazing that he actually makes a major female character mm-hmm. because in the, the first book, Females, are either women that you sleep with to gain information and then murder, mm-hmm. or they are, you know, evil sexual succubus spirits who give you prophecy but might kill you right. by fucking you to death. Or religious fanatics. Or re- re- religious fanatics who are sleeping with the like devil incarnate in the right. man in black. So I love that he has a major woman character. I love that the, the character is struggling through the, the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. I love that this character has a disability. All of these things, I think, to me, symbolize that that King does have a very progressive political heart. Mm-hmm. That being said, listening to a caricature of racism written by a white man in 2019 is a little untasteful, to say the least. Sure, it's uncomfortable. It's it's difficult reading the Detta mm-hmm. because of the, the Detta slang. Reading it was better than doing the Audible because... Oh, I can imagine. When I read it, I could create a voice that wasn't as fucked up. But it was still... It, was a, it, it is hard. Yeah. The theme, though, 
that King is playing with of giving characters obstacles that are really difficult that they're going to have to plan and improvise, which leads directly into the theme of duality. It makes sense to have a disabled schizophrenic character, Mm. even though what actually um, what Odetta is suffering from is disassociative disorder in the eighties. They called it schizophrenia. Now we wouldn't call it schizophrenia. It's disassociative disorder is where someone creates an alternate personality that they disassociate and they slip into, like Tyler Durgan and Nameless in Fight Club. That's not actually schizophrenic. And that's the disorder that that she has. But for whatever, King's not a psychologist, and it was the 80s, and nobody really knew what that meant. In, in the 80s, everyone that had this was schizophrenic. The fact that Roland has to take these two frag this fragmented psyche and bring it into one is symbolic of Roland's need to f- frag to heal his own fragmented psyche and bring it into one. And it's going to be a theme that's going to prop up in this book and in subsequent books where hey there's a dual nature to the world. There's a dual nature to the tower. There's a dual nature to these characters. Mm-hmm. And they're at their best when that dual nature is rectified into a whole. One of, I think, the most visually interesting and complex moments is when Roland is in Mort and he is looking through the door. Mm-hmm. And Odetta, pardon me, Detta is looking back. And Detta sees herself looking at herself. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, those two personalities are in conflict and those two personalities start fighting. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the thematic uh, crescendo, if you will, of the entire book. Mm -hmm. Is And not only is that, she's looking at the person who created Detta in Jack Mort, Mm -hmm. the person that dropped the brick on her and pushed her in front of the train that severed her legs. She's confronting the very monster that fractured her psyche. And that monster is also literally looking at her, looking at her mm-hmm. in a, in like a funhouse mirror way right. that honestly only Stephen King could write. Sure. No, absolutely. As absolutely. Pro- as problematic as it is, I have to give it props for its mm-hmm. brilliance mm-hmm. because there is an element that, yeah, the caricature of Detta and the way that she talks is so infuriating and really difficult to read. But the way he brings the second and third doors together to heal, to create Susanna Dean, Mm -hmm. is probably some of the most beautiful shit I've ever read. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the cynical part of me says, how does Eddie Dean immediately fall in love with Odetta Holmes? Like, immediately. It just happens. Like, he sees her in love at first sight. And then again, I have to suspend my disbelief and realize that, Ed, there's a piece of Eddie that realizes that he's going to be in this world for a long time. He's made his decision. And he finally finds someone he can connect to that struggles, that goes through the same obstacles, maybe in a different form, but that they're struggling to become their own person, which through magic, if you will, Odetta and Detta, by the end of this, by the end of this chapter, become Susanna Dean. And we have a third character. We have a brand new character. And, and we it, have the drawing of the we three. We have the three. Right. Correct. I'm just going to, just for PC culture, uh, it's unfortunately, it's persons with a disability. 
Honestly, I appreciate that. Hey, I wasn't trying to be offensive or, or rude to you or anything. In, in no way, shape, or form. Yeah. When it comes to discussing sensitive issues, you have to make space for when you get it wrong right, to right. be able to be corrected and to allow that correction to be public. So thank you. I, yeah. I appreciate that. I would, never, I would never want someone to listen to this and be annoyed because the way I phrased something was inherently mm. offensive to them. Because that's not the point of this at all. The point of this is to be inclusive and not, I get to define how you describe yourself. No, I don't have that fucking power. No, of course, of course. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, and this correlates between Eddie and Odetta. Um, yeah, I'll refer to her as Odetta. Susanna comes later. So I really like the fact that, uh, that Odetta and Eddie are about 20 years apart. In, in their world. So from the same world, but from a different win. And it, there's just something about it that as a reader that, you know, we know all the pop culture references that Stephen King, you know, puts throughout the series. But I like the fact that Eddie talks about things that have already happened that have not happened in Odetta's win. So in his win, they've happened. In hers, they have not. And it's just an interesting, it adds a little bit of, uh, of levity to the conversations that they have. Those brief little moments where we're able to kind of chuckle at, you know, at the pop culture references. Like I brought up Amico in the last episode. And I just, I thought that was hilarious that Amico gets referenced. It's those little pieces throughout the book series that remind us that our reality, our world is a part of this story inherently, no matter what. So that makes us, the readers, a part of the story. And I've always gotten a kick out of, you know, especially with Eddie's wit, how he's just able to throw references around and Odette is like, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, right, right, right. It's happened in my win. Like he throws it around a couple of times and just they're able, we're able to bounce through time and through space and it become a normality throughout the book series. It's almost as a reader, I'm able to suspend my dif disbelief enough to say, yeah, I can, I can bounce between decades. All this makes sense to me. This is awesome. Just an interesting little piece of the, of the story that, that will continue on that I, I, th I think is, it's, it's really clever of Stephen King to put those in there. And you're touching on something that I think will become a huge topic later is the literary device of what I would say metatextuality. Mm. When a text refers to the fact that it's a text. When Deadpool is aware, he's a comic book. Right. And I will just tease that there. Right. We won't dive into it. But I think we're seeing the seeds of the idea that like there are multiple realities. There are multiple whens. Mm -hmm. They are happening congruently on top of each other and that they interact with each other. And some of the best moments are simply when characters we love, like Odetta, Detta, and Eddie, just get to be themselves in this bizarre and weird world. So for the interest of time, I'd like to talk a little bit about The Pusher. Yes, the third and final door. So, Jack Mort. I want to just talk about one. I read the quote about naming and the power of names. So there is a Latin word for death. It's called mortem. There is a Spanish word for death, morte. There is an Italian word for death, morti. And there's a French word for death, mort. Jack Mort, that name is not an accident. Right. 
King's a smart dude. Mm -hmm. He knows the language really well. Mm -hmm. And he knows when he calls a character Jack Mort, he is essentially naming them the average guy but death. Right. And that's what that name means. Yeah, this is our first straight-up serial killer. 100%. Kills for no other purpose than the thrill of killing. And has done it so successfully, he has staged every one of his murders or attempted murders as accidents, as mm. just mistakes. Mm -hmm. And because of that, he gets away with all of them. I think this is the culmination of the duality theme. Mm -hmm. Because Jack Mort is a ruthless killer who kills and enjoys it. Mm -hmm. Roland is a ruthless killer who kills and enjoys yeah, it. Yeah, I think Roland sees a certain piece of himself within Jack Mort. And we have to ask ourselves, what's the difference between Jack and Roland? Mm, that's and, a great question. And King gives us the answers, because mm -hmm. he does. Because when, when King sees the first cops who are overweight, Lazy, out of shape. Right. He considers the Roland reckless. considers them gunslingers. It's like these are gunslingers. Right. They came to my aid. I will not kill them. Correct. No matter what, I will not kill them. And because Roland still has a form of a code, and Roland sees one the wheels of cost all over Jack Mort, who is essentially the creator mm -hmm. of Detta Walker. And he knows that that it's no coincidence that the third door is is Jack Mort, and it's no coincidence that the third card was death, but not for you. We get to see death incarnate in Jack Mort, and in that we see the starkest contrast between Jack and Roland, and that reaffirms Roland as the hero. That means that Roland walks out of this with a family, with people he cares about, with people that he loves people that he completely 100% is dedicated to. Right, he's not just a senseless killer. Correct. He's not just, we, this is the point in time where, you know, Roland's humanity starts to come through in this book for sure. 100%. I'd like to read a quote because I've been doing that a lot. <laughs> this is in the drawing of the three where um, Roland and Mort are on, or are at the train station. He could hear the train roaring towards the platform, could see its light, had no way of knowing it was a train which kept the same route as the one which had run over Odetta. But all the same, he didn't know. In matters of the tower, fate became a thing as merciful as the lighter which saved his life and as painful as the fire the miracle had ignited. Like the wheels of the oncoming train, it followed over course both logical and crushingly brutal a course against, against which only steel and sweetness could stand. A few things I want to point into, logical and crushingly brutal. The duality, steel and sweetness. That there are two opposite poles at every point in this book, and the three is when you are in perfect harmony in the middle mm. between those two poles. Mm -hmm. It brings the whole thing home. Roland didn't know... This was the exact same train that ran over Odetta and took her legs. He didn't know that whatsoever. Right. He had no idea. And Jack Mort, his body is on fire. He is looking through a portal in the other world and says, okay, take a look because I'm going to push the pusher. 
one last time. And then Pusher, which is also a reference right back to Eddie Dean. Makes him wildly uncomfortable when he sees the writing on the door. Absolutely. And it all culminates. And I would say that at the end of this conversation we have about this book, this book does so much in such a short period of time. It certainly has its faults, and I'm not glossing over those faults. In particular, the character Detta Walker is really difficult to read as a contemporary 2019, a person trying to be not a dick in the world. Nick, it's really hard to read that. However, however, I have to give credit to the wordslinger Stephen King in this book because the themes culminate with the climax, which A, saves Eddie's life because Eddie's about to be eaten alive by the lobstrosities. B, heals Susanna, her psychic wound, or pardon me, heals Odetta and Detta and creates the third Susanna, which heals the psychic wound, gets vengeance on Mort, who finally has to pay for his crimes. Roland is on his first step to redeeming the choice to damn and kill Jake, realizing that losing your soul for the tower is not a gambit that's worth making. And and in the end, it, it really puts these three characters in a position where we are ready for the next phase. We're ready to see two more gunslingers and we're ready for Roland to be redeemed. And what's interesting is there are two pieces uh, in the pusher that that really stuck out to me. And when we look through the theme of obstacles, right? So Jack Mort is the reason that A, Odetta does not have the use of her legs any longer, and B, why Detta Walker exists. So he pushes basically a, a, a pile of bricks or a large, you know, uh, you know, piece of concrete off of a roof and hits her in the head, lands her in the hospital. That's how Detta becomes. And then later on, He's also, we come out to find that he's the reason why Jake dies in the first book. Directly because of Jack Mort. So Jack has set up, if you think about it, Roland's obstacles. More obstacles for Roland in this story. Obstacles for the the characters themselves. I mean, he lands Jake in Roland's world. Like, what? That's a gigantic obstacle. The physical obstacles, the mental obstacles that Odetta has to go through are directly related to this to, to Jack Mort. And, and I'd, I'd say to death itself. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's right on. Yep. To death itself, because that's what Mort is. Mort means, the word literally means death. I only have one final thing I'd like to talk about. Do it. And you and I had spoke about this uh, prior to our conversation, and it was actually something that you had pointed out that it, that enlightened me throughout the story, if you'd, if you'd permit me to share that. Please. So we had had a conversation about who set the doors. Where do the doors come from? Right? So we have the prisoner, we have the Lady of Shadows, we have the pusher. And we know that in the prior book, there's a tarot card drawing from the man in black, entire conversation between he and Roland. And you had enlightened me to the fact that you believed that the man in black is the person that set these doors. So after our one or two beers, maybe a little bourbon last night, I sat up and I thought about that specific piece because it was the one thing I was wrestling with. It was the one thing that last night I couldn't get my brain around and couldn't like 100% agree with. 
And somewhere in the middle of the night, around three or four o'clock, it woke me up. And I went, of course. Of course it's the man in black. He is setting the next set of obstacles that Roland has to conquer in order to get to the next piece. Who else? Whoa, what are they, just random doors? Like I had no real reason to not think that that was true. But I had to think through it and think about what happens in this book. Also consider what happens in future books. You know, we won't give anything away here, but to consider all those things, to hearken back on, well, of course it's him. The man in black is the obstacle. I freaking love that. He is the obstacle. At least where we are right now, in the drawing of the three, he is Roland's main obstacle. Because uh, according to Roland, he's dead. He has his fucking jawbone, dude. He whips his jawbone out at the end of this book. And as a reminder, I've conquered this obstacle. Next. This is why Roland is a badass. Oh, yeah. He, next. Okay. What's the next thing you can throw at me? You've taken my fingers. You've taken my toe. You've taken my ability to do the thing I do best. You've complicated my life with these two individuals who, a woman who was two different people in her brain. Now she's a third different person. They're fucking married. They have their own thing. We haven't even gotten to Jake again. Like, Roland, this entire thing is an obstacle, which just leads me back to him finding his soul. He's gained another piece of the puzzle. Yep, and that piece is the, what we will see in the next book, the Katet. I'm very excited to start book three. Me too, the Wastelands. Before we wrap up, the one thing I'd like to say is, Midnight Myth listeners, we do need to know what you think. We do need to know if this project is something you're enjoying, if you want us to continue doing it. And uh, we want your feedback on how to do it better. So there's a few ways that you can reach us. We're on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. You can search Midnight Myth Podcast on Facebook or Instagram or go to www.midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form on there. Um, and so hit us up, tell us what you think, tell us what you want to see. These books are going to get progressively bigger, right? So we may have some format challenges and we want your input, dark tower aficionados and fans. We want to know what's working for you. We want to know what's not working. for How you. deep do you want us to get? And if there's something that you think we missed that we need to talk about, hit us up and we will talk about it. So we are dependent on your participation to keep this project going. And one last thing that I will say for, for all the listeners, because being that I was a listener to the Midnight Myth podcast prior to being a host on this really awesome series, is that when Derek and Laurel say that they will read these things, they will take your opinions into consideration, they will talk about the things that you want them to talk about, they mean it. And it wouldn't, you know... Just as, just as an aside, because, because I think that the original podcast is amazing. And I think that it's worth for you as the listeners, you put your valuable time once a week into listening to their episode that they work incredibly hard on. But your opinion means just as much as their work. So, so especially with this, because I'm new at it and it's a brand new thing for me, I would love to see... 
I would also love to hear how you think our dynamic works and, 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 and really just continue to push the midnight myth because what Derek and Laurel have is important, it's necessary, and it's awesome. And I think it should continue. And now what Derek and Steve have. Yes. Yes. And long days, pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant nights. 